Hello there, and welcome back. If you normally skip this pre-intro, I ask that you stick around today. I've got some news, I've got some requests, and of course I wanna tell you about today's guest. So first off, we are now on Amazon Music. So if you're a member of Amazon and you get your podcast through Amazon, you can find Price of Pain podcast there. And wherever you do listen or watch the Price of Pain podcast, I ask, please, comment, like other comments, and rate the podcast in general or the episode. This helps us to get our podcast out to a wider audience. I feel like we have some really interesting and helpful content for people. And so we want to get that to as many people as we can. And if you would go and click that subscribe button, that help us out. And you also get updates on when we release a new episode. Last of all, I still would love to get more questions to be answered on a future episode. So even if your question is, hey, Josh, how do I subscribe to your podcast? Send that in on an email to priceofpainpodcast at gmail.com. And I'll answer those for you either on air or off the air. Now, today's guest is Dr. Kyle Allen. He's an associate professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering here at UF. And his lab, the Orthopedic Biomedical Engineering Laboratory, works in the preclinical space. So his research is all on rodents. But what he looks at are areas within the preclinical space that would really help out those of us who conduct clinical research on humans. If you can't tell, I'm a huge fan. This is not the last time that Kyle will be on the Price of Pain podcast, but I think it's a really good introduction into what he does. We talk about uh, some of the technology that he's developed in uh, preclinical research and some of the ways that he applies that and, and how it directly relates in some of his collaborations uh, to help people. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. I guess I should I should preface our conversation by the fact that I'm a huge fan. You know, we, we I think the first time I, I came in contact with your work was through one of our data blitzes back when we were oh. doing in-person stuff. I was like, oh, wow. And, you know, it's f for translational researchers, sometimes it's difficult to get excited about preclinical research. <laughs> you know, there's there's that chasm there that I, I if I understand correctly, you're actually trying to address uh, with your work. But instantly I was like, oh, man, this this stuff that he's putting out is going to be so useful and already is. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of our focus is along those lines. I, I think a lot of people when they develop different therapies or different technologies that they're trying to use to, um, advance pain treatments in the clinic, uh, those comes from certain types of laboratories that are really experts in, you know, pharmacology or experts in some sort of stimulation device or something along those lines. Yeah. And, you know, you also need preclinical experts in pain because in order to get those technologies from the, you know, really intensive electrical engineering lab or the really intensive, you know, pharmaceutical lab, uh, drug discovery lab, uh, they need help to translate those technologies. And so our program really uh, focused on trying to fill some gaps there and uh, looking at the preclinical models and really trying to develop different ways to evaluate 
symptoms. You know, I, we use the ter term symptoms more than we use the term pain mm -hmm. because it can manifest in a whole lot of different ways. It can manifest through changes in movement, changes in activity, changes in sensitivity or other things along those lines. And especially when you're working with with animals, those behaviors aren't necessarily what you would expect them to be. Um, they're little tiny animals are not humans and they right. express pain in different ways. Um, and so we really uh, try to take our engineering skills to, to try and develop new ways of quantifying that and measuring that really for the goal of advancing pain across the the field. So when we and when we say preclinical, I should point out that you, most of your research is rodent model. Is yes. that correct? Okay. It's entirely entirely rodent, rodent, model. rodent model. Yeah, we we only work in mice and rats. And there's got to be a little bit of a benefit, you know, mm -hmm. in, in in doing behavioral research myself. One of the the potential confounds, is, you know, comes in the instruments that you use. Surveys, for example, mm -hmm. you know, there are surveys that are, are are pretty well validated and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is, if I ask you a question about how you feel or what you've done over the past 24 hours without directly observing it myself, well, there's always the chance that, that you're not going to be entirely accurate. And I, I'm reluctant to use the word honest, but sure. in, all, in all fairness, sometimes people aren't honest with their own recollection or with themselves um, in their experiences when they're recalling it. So I feel like there's got to be a little bit of an advantage in a, in a preclinical setting in the respect that you don't get that. The, the, the animals aren't telling you verbally, at least, <laughs> this is how I feel. Yeah, uh, I think that's very true. I mean, but there's still experimental bias on the on the other side sure. of things, right? Um, so the person who's taking the measurement might have some sort of bias that they're uh, instituting on top of it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the rodent can't tell us how much pain they're in, but we can develop different ways of, of measuring their activity or their movement patterns uh, or some of their selections, you know, like how often are they eating? Do they... Uh, space out their eating over longer periods of time, or do they have these big, huge meals and things along those lines that might give us a, a, an idea of sort of symptomatically how they're behaving, you know, some of the lifestyle choices that they're right. making. We, and we can measure that, you know, entirely accurately um, in the different techniques that we do ver versus re relying on recall like we do in clinical studies. Right, right. right? So in some ways we get, we get better data, but um, in other ways – there's still the bias yeah, the bi <laughs> of, of, of taking it. Right? I mean, yeah, I immediately think, you know, uh, you know, I have an older dog right. you know, coming up on 16 years old. And so th there'll be times where she's you know, kind of moseying around and, and my mother or someone will say, oh, she looks so sad or whatever. I'm like, well, mm -hmm. she actually just woke up. You know, you're, you're anthropomorphizing <laughs> right. on her. You, right, you know, right, you're right. projecting what you think she's doing when that's not accurate. So I could see how that could happen. Yeah. Um, I want to rewind a little bit, though. Um, we talked – prior to you coming on the episode uh, mm -hmm. about Nebraska volleyball and so oh. on and so forth, and which uh, is is another huge passion of mine. I but see you have a Florida shirt on here today. I, I do. You didn't for a warm. I actually have a Nebraska cap <laughs> in my uh, office I could have brought. I'm kind of glad that you didn't. You know, there's, there, are, there are a few programs that have given uh, Florida volleyball some fits over time, and Nebraska, yeah. Um, yeah, they're one of them. But, you know, that... In, in talking to you about that, I, of course, I wanted to go back and look at your bio and, and see your connections to Nebraska mm -hmm. and what you've done. I noticed that you're undergrad, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but you have an engineering and economics I do. bachelor's? How? <laughs> I'm sure it's a long story, uh, but we yeah. have time. Okay. So, you know, that's – I'm always, I'm always intrigued by how – people get to where they are now. Because yeah. my, my route was certainly not linear uh, to the point that, I, that I'm in now. So, you know, what, what, what was your initial thought in going to college and in, in, in seeking out that degree? Yeah, so I, somewhere on the internet, there's actually another recording of me telling this, this whole story. Okay. It is circuitous. Um, 
which is not a it's not a pain uh, related uh, recording there. But um, yeah, when I went to to I mean, I grew up in really small town, Nebraska, mm-hmm. uh, about thirty five hundred people in my hometown. And it's the largest thing around by miles and miles and miles. Right. Uh, it gets pretty desolate out there. So if you go, you know, if you drive on Highway 2 west of my town, it's something like 140 miles to the next hospital. It just wow. gets really, um, really desolate yeah. <laughs> out in that part of the country. Um, so going to college, I was very much not the person that I am now. I was pretty terrified of large, huge campuses, including University of Nebraska. So I chose to go to Rose-Hulman, uh, which is a tiny engineering school in Indiana. And I always just thought, well, I'm good at math and I'm good at science, so I'll be an engineer. And uh, my dad's a pretty good business person, so I was like, oh, I'll do economics. Maybe I'll get an MBA and I'll be, you know, some suit in some corporation somewhere. <laughs> right. Right? Um, and uh, that was really always the plan. Okay. Um, and then, you know, I graduated uh, undergraduate in uh, 2002. So uh, September 11th actually happened my senior year. Oh, man. And I remember uh, seeing that uh, happen on the screen. Uh, in the in the um, union of my school, and the night before, I actually broke <laughs> broke up with my girlfriend of like two years. This is getting deeply it's a personal. Rough here. week, yeah. Rough, um, yeah, that was my own personal experience with that, and uh, that that really just made me think a lot about what I wanted to do with my life. And and at the time, I was in uh, a biomaterials class as as an elective, mm-hmm. as a free elective, and I I you know the job market wasn't great because U.S. had started a couple of wars and it wasn't a great time to find a an engineering job. And so the place that I had been doing my internships for years wasn't hiring. And so I started to throw in some graduate applications. I actually only applied to four graduate schools. Okay. And um, I had a, uh, a job offer from a from a actually a biomedical company in Indianapolis that did little testing robots for um, pharmaceutical uh, trials. Oh, that's cool. Okay. And then I had a graduate uh, PhD offer from Rice University. And I thought I would just take the job on the at the robotics company because I'd been on a couple other um, uh, graduate school visits. And I, But I said, well, let me take this last one to Rice and just see how it goes. And I went to Rice and just absolutely fell in love with it. I, I loved it at that campus. It seemed to fit my personality. I met a ton of people that I would have been really excited to work for. And, uh, and you know, I had to make a decision quickly. I, I don't regret the decision at all. Um, worked for a great mentor at Rice. Um, and as I was uh, finishing up my PhD, he pulled me aside and basically said, I don't think you belong in industry. <laughs> I think you belong <laughs> in academia. And I think he's right. I, I really enjoy uh, this job and and this community, mm-hmm. um, so in some ways, you know, those negative things can 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 turn into positive things down the road. I mean, yeah. that was definitely a decision point. Um, and as it turns out, you know, my economics degree is largely based in statistics, and a lot of what we do from a data analysis and data science perspective ends up being. I mean, I use my economics degree all the time. I, really I, cool. I don't know that people. Uh, really fully appreciate that. Uh, right. It seems like it's a complete outlier, but it's like actually it's part of what makes our lab sort of unique. Yeah, specifically if you if you have so much of, I mean, numbers are numbers, but right. um, you know, statistics and in, in some more conventional math are are not really congruent in a lot of ways. You know, statistics is its own language, mm-hmm. is its own thing. So if you, if if in in your economics you had all of that as as far as the analytical outlook and the and right. the computational stuff. And and had some kind of bent on uh, on statistics that that I think that puts you ahead of everybody else that's right. that gets into academia saying oh I love science I love this thing and then 
it's like, well, how, how do I manage, how do I manage my lab? How do I, how do I run these analyses? How do I, you know? Yeah. So I can see how that'd be a huge advantage and, and not, not as, as tangential as, as it might look on the surface. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, one of the things that was kind of interesting there, I tell people all the time, I mean, economics is all about taking some variable and trying to predict some other variable that, right. that don't really seem all that related, right? You're trying to make a prediction. Something's mm -hmm. changing over here. So it's going to change over here. And that's what we do in Sounds science familiar. all the time, <laughs> <laughs> um, trying to make predictions across right. things. And, and actually, when I interviewed for the job at UF, um, I met with uh, Mingzhu Ding, who's still, still here and in mm -hmm. my department. And uh, Mingzhu was uh, using something called Granger causality models it's from economics. And it's, you know, you use A to predict B sort of thing in this time series analysis. And that might be a little bit too deep, but it comes from economics. I mean, mm -hmm. Granger won the, the Nobel for, I believe he won the Nobel. He won a lot of things in economics um, for uh, that mathematics, which uh, Mingzhu is now using to map out the brain and understand how brain circuits communicate. That's awesome. So That's how awesome. one part of the brain communicates with another. Change here causes change mm -hmm. there. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's uh, it, science is useful across many, many different inter interdisciplinary directions. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And so I, I also, you know, that's it's kind of interesting. We talk about interdisciplinary uh, approaches and whatnot with your lab. Um, it, it's it's common for a lab to focus pretty heavily on one specific application <laughs> or one arena. But but you really don't. Um, no. you, you're definitely an engineering lab. I, I, I have a lot of friends. I've coached a lot of a lot of volleyball players uh, that were engineers here, and uh, I'm always enamored with the scope of their ability. You know, if if you're a good engineer, there's a lot of things that you can do. You can apply that to a lot of things, and it seems like you've done that with your work here. Yeah, I think you need both types, though, right? I mean, I think there are definitely people in engineering that are, like, technical skill, mm -hmm. you know, deep dive into the, the physics of different things. Right. And, and that's not necessarily us. Um, that comes a lot from my, my PhD advisor, um, who always – so he's uh, always gave these great speeches on, like, holistic visions, right? He's, he's Cyprian um, <laughs> okay. and uh, always goes back, like, oh, the ancient Greeks did this and this and this and mm -hmm. took a holistic vision of this and, you know um, – and, but that really sunk into me during my PhD, and and you know we we very much try to do that. We we view our role in science as being the big data integrators. Mm -hmm. We're going to work across um, orthopedics into neuroscience, into pain research, and then all the way down to the material science, or um, the drug delivery platforms, or other things along those lines. That doesn't mean that we're an expert in all of those areas. But what our role is is to help the people that are experts in all those different areas. Put it all together. Put the whole put the whole picture together from all the puzzle pieces. True translational facilitator. Yeah, yeah. that's the idea. Well, let's yeah. talk about some of those things. Okay. One, I uh, like I said, my, my first exposure to you is at at this event, uh, uh, Data Blitz, and and for those who aren't familiar with that, it's really just a it's a meeting uh, amongst scholars where we spend just maybe five to fifteen minutes in a roundtable type scenario where people go up and they present what they're currently working on or what they're about to embark on and uh, take a few questions and then sit down. And so over the course of a two-hour event, you can really cover some ground and get an idea for what your colleagues are doing. And, and that's where I first was, uh, was exposed to your work. And so I went and did a little bit of digging even back then and was really interested in this concept uh, and, and some of the technology that you've developed in, in doing some you know, spatial uh, temporal parameters of gait, but in rodents. Right. So let's... And, 
and this is is this the is this part of the Gator suite? It is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. And Gator spelled G A I T O R. Right. Clever. Right. I like yes. this. Yeah. Uh, so let, let's spend a minute on that because I think that's really interesting stuff. A lot of times when when people. Um, of course, everybody's a professional now. So, for example, you go on social media and they say, oh, yeah, but that was in blah, 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 blah. But mm-hmm. um, with your work, you, it seems like you, you're going out of your way to, to bridge that gap. So people it's it's more difficult to say, well, how do you measure that in, in mice, for example? You know, so you have these devices. Please expound on this. Yeah. So, I mean. Our goal really was to look at, if we were just taking an engineering approach to measuring rodents walk, how would we do it? And uh, other people were trying to do the same thing as, as us at, uh, at relatively similar times. But um, I think what we really tried to do is scale what we knew from human biomechanics down to the rodent to try and take measurements that we could take in humans and relate it to how rodents were walking but at the same time come at it from a very historical perspective. Because I mean, people have been studying gait for, again, I'm going to sound like my old PhD advisor. <laughs> I mean, since the Greeks, right? It's right like for yeah. for sure. you know, 3,000 years, they've been looking at movement patterns in, 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 in rodents and in, in, in humans. I mean, Aristotle wrote on this, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so what we were really trying to do is take that historical perspective and then take modern technology and use it in in a in a, a new way to take these take these measurements. Let's talk about the measurements sure. for for just a moment for people who may not be familiar with gait. Um, and I'm certain that a, a large percentage of of our audience are, are, is not biomechanists. <laughs> right. Um, so, w- what are some of these measurements that are that are common in humans that you've been able to uh, devise a way to collect in rodents? And then how? Yeah, so, I mean, the most simple ones are just, you know, stance time. How much time is the foot on the ground? How fast are you walking? How long is your stride? Those sorts of things, right? And in rodents, I'd I'd say that we've done a good job for decades measuring spatial parameters, which is how far, like how how fast, how far sort of of measurements. Mm -hmm. The challenge when you get to other things like time um, is uh, rodents go really fast, right? Really, really fast. Their their gait is very, very rapid, right. and so you um, really need things like modern high speed videography to be able to track their motion, um, and really ultra high speed videography. And are so, you are you doing this? Um, if I may interject, are you doing this on on like a, a rodent treadmill or overground or? Yeah. So well, that's a whole other uh, part of the conversation. Okay. Right? All right. Because well, so, so rodents don't let me get in your way. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I think that's a really good question. We actually do it overground, and we're very um, uh, very uh, much like of the strong opinion that it should be done overground. Okay. Because uh, treadmills, uh, you and I have been exposed to treadmills since we were kids, right? We know what that is. We still walk differently on treadmills, but right. rodents find that to be a very stressful environment. And uh, anytime you stress a, a rat or a mouse out, you, uh, you basically create adrenaline responses and they will mask different behaviors or not necessarily give you a selected behavior. Mm-hmm. So, and we've actually, we've published on this. It's actually much harder to detect um, pain-related gait abnormalities on a treadmill. Okay. Now, you know, physical impairment, so if I have muscle injury or some joint changes, um, then maybe I can pick that out on a treadmill, but but the treadmill is pretty stressful for the rodent. So we uh, all of our measurements are done overground um, with ultra high speed uh, cameras, like you see on like MythBusters, and right, okay. you know that sort of stuff, right? right. Um, uh, so I immediately we, think, and I don't I don't know if anybody will, will be with me on this page, but I immediately think of 
the whole urinating on the third rail myth. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and so since this is, this is a yeah, science podcast, yeah, sure. I can break this down. So they, they basically replicated um, urinating on the third rail of a subway. Uh-huh and use this ultra high speed video to show that it's actually not a continuous stream, stream that it breaks yes. into droplets and right. all that. So right. yeah, that, yeah. as so, soon as you said that, for some reason, that's exactly <laughs> what I went to of all the episodes right. I've ever seen. Right, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we use those cameras and then we have also developed some force plates. So we can, when a, when a rodent hits, uh, foot hits the force plate, mm-hmm. we can get the vertical forces, which tells us how much weight they're bearing, how much of their body weight is going through their limb. Mm-hmm. But it also gives us information about, um, you know, when you're walking, uh, if you think about taking a step forward, you're actually kind of falling forward. And mm-hmm. then your foot hits the ground, it stops that momentum. So there's a, that's what we call a breaking force, right? right? Right. And then as you as you push off with the foot, it, you get a propulsion force. We can measure all these off-axis forces. We can measure the torque of the foot on the ground, which mm-hmm. is the, how the foot twists. So it's similar to, to force plates used in humans. It has oh, yeah. a sensor in each corner. So it, it can, Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So when, so when you're talking about walking, for example, mm-hmm. gait being a, a series of controlled falls. Right. That's in bipeds. Does it work the same in quadrupeds? It does, actually. Um, and, and this is one of the unique advantages uh, for uh, rodents because they they use what we, what we call in the gate world a diagonal sequence, which means their right foot goes forward, right forefoot goes forward when their left hind foot. So okay. it's a cross, it's diagonal coordination. Uh, humans walk that way too, except for like in the old West, right? Westerns right. where the cowboy <laughs> walks in, you know, yeah. uh, in sort of, it's sort of the weird fashion. No, um, I, I want to interject because th- this yeah. is really fascinating to me. My, uh, my master's degree advisor is a biomechanist mm-hmm. and, and I originally with my PhD was going to go that route. So mm-hmm. I, but I never really got to, to fulfill, I guess, scratch that itch academically. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you say that in humans, as far as the diagonal pattern, is the, the upper body movement more of an artifact of the the feet, you know, I guess, for, in layman's terms, back and forth, right? You step with your left and, you know, your uh, your right arm kind of swings forward and you step with your right, your left arm kind of swings mm-hmm. forward. Is that because of, of artifact that's, 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 I guess, movement artifact that's translating up through the... Through the body, or? yeah, it's probably more related to balance, yeah, okay. right, um, and 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 center of mass coordination, mm-hmm. sort of things there, um, rather than like it, rather than just an artifact, but right. like yeah, in in mice, um, again, they're going to use it more from a from a balance perspective, mm-hmm. um, and they're relatively short legged animals, so most short legged animals will will have that sort of coordination pattern, mm-hmm. but as it turns out, I mean, we're comparing quadrupeds and bipeds. Really, rodents um, walk as if they have two bipedal systems. Their forelimbs are basically a bipedal system. Their hind limbs are basically a bipedal system. And so um, you can get a lot done just by evaluating it as separately two bipedal systems. Now, some people might argue with me a little bit there, and, and there are definitely places where that's what I just said is wrong. Right. right? Um, <laughs> but in a, in a lot of measurements, you can get pretty far with just uh, considering them as two as a Two bipedal systems. Okay, um, and so you you say high speed camera. Mm-hmm. You use force plates. Yeah. And what are some of the the reactions, say, to pain? Now, now granted, mm-hmm. this is a, a really broad question to right. ask, but if you see changes in movement, um, you know whether it's uh, uh, stance time or, or some of the more mm-hmm. intricate measures. W- what do you see paired with specific uh, pain states? Yeah. The answer is it depends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in really um, severe pain states, they will limp like you and I will limp. Um, and that's usually offloading the injured limb, loading the, uh, the uninjured limb. Right. 
Um, and we kind of, you can conceptualize what that looks like. Um, but for a lot of conditions that are sort of chronic pain conditions, we actually see um, something that's closer to what we would call shuffle stepping, right? So in, in uh, osteoarthritis, the animal might have um, osteoarthritic, ch osteoarthritic changes in their, in their right limb uh, and only have osteoarthritis in one, one limb, but then they still select a, a shuffle stepping pattern. So that means that they uh, lengthen step, uh, stance times on both limbs, mm -hmm. they shorten stride lengths on both limbs, mm -hmm. and what that does is it actually lowers force on both limbs. So even though it's a one-sided injury, it's a it's a bi-sided compensation. So, so now since they are quadrupeds, and you right. said you can measure this as, as in a way two bipedal systems, mm -hmm. let's say you have an osteoarthritic limb mm -hmm. or a joint in the the right rear limb. Mm -hmm. Will you see those same shuffles systemically? You see it in their front legs as well, just to, to kind of complete the system, or you you do to some degree. Although it, that's always sort of a question of of you know it. I would say it's a little bit in the noise, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, we're not exactly sure whether they're shifting weight to their forelimbs or compensating with their forelimbs, or whether they just need to do that in order to have a consistent gait, right? Right, right. because. You can't, uh, this is one of the you know, funny things that comes up, you know, so you can't really have a different stride length on your left and right limb, because if you do, you'll be turning in a circle, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> and you can't really have a different stride length on your forelimbs and your hind limbs, because if you do, you're either getting longer or shorter, right. right? That all has to be coordinated. So I would say right now, we aren't really sure whether it's just, well, I have my back, my back legs are hurt, so therefore I'm compensating this way, and they're in order to not fall over, right, my right. forelimbs have to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I think that kind of that rounds out at least the the gate in a, mm -hmm. in a in a snapshot. Sure. I, I don't want to, of course, I don't want to be reductionist here. But um, what other, I guess, so you you mentioned that osteoarthritis research is is a large part, and I see yeah. that in, in your publications in your work. Um, what other uh, conditions that lead to maybe chronic pain states or associated with chronic pain states are you looking at? Just staying within this realm of gait. Oh, within the realm of gait. Yeah. So we we work really on three uh, different joint pain disorders, right? So osteoarthritis is the big one that we work on. And then we also work on um, some low back pain conditions, largely disc herniation. Um, some other folks that we have collaborated with have worked on things like uh, discogenic pain, which is like degeneration right. rather than herniation. Right. Um, and then uh, we've also had some history in working in temporal mandibular joint disorders. That's that's the jaw pain. That goes right? way back with that you, goes, right? Oh, we've done some work here, too. Mm -hmm. um, but that's actually where my PhD is in, is yeah. in the temporal mandibular okay. joint. Um, and obviously, that doesn't really affect gait. But it does affect some <laughs> other things sure. um, uh, uh, that we measure as well. So. And all right. And so and I guess the, the big question that I want to ask before we move on is, in what way have, because this is translational research, it's mm -hmm. preclinical, you're trying to bridge the gap and, 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 and try to draw some connections to human model and, and make this, this technology and this, uh, this knowledge useful in, in clinical settings. What are some of the areas that are really exciting for you? Just still staying with gait, because we have plenty to talk about, um, but just staying in, in, in gait, maybe even osteoarthritis, um, what are some of the, the big areas that are really interesting that you think could, could make a splash in the human model in clinical studies right now? Yeah, so um, I should clarify a little bit. So my lab, when we talk about um, the therapies that we study um, most specifically in my lab, it's usually related to exercise and activity. Mm -hmm. So we are very much a physical function uh, related lab. So we're, we'll look at things like 
how active is the animal, how, um, you know, exercise paradigms, uh, diet sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, things along those lines. Um, and we're really more of a trying to discover the relationship between muscle activation, cartilage, bone, ligament, diet, yeah. blood pressure, like a, a holistic view of the disease and how the animal is choosing to behave with that whole picture, mm -hmm. right? Um, so much of this is, is really just trying to understand the continuum of pain and disability within the context of a musculoskeletal disease. From a translational perspective, I need collaborators, right? Um, so we have a number of collaborators where who have developed therapeutics that might change uh, inflammation patterns. We have a lot of immunomodulatory uh, collaborators. We have another collaborator who's looking at trying to change neural signals, so the signals that are going from the joint to the brain, and can we electrically block them and, mm -hmm. and change things along those lines. Most of those technologies are, are you know, first of their kind sort of things, right? Very, um, very new emerging uh, area, areas of medicine. And we can help them sort of see not only how it affects pain and disability, but how it affects the entire animal uh, and some of their um, symptoms. That's fascinating. I, a, a lot of my interest at this point right now is also looking at that within, mm -hmm. within a physical performance exercise, if you want to call it that. Um, but Sometimes I think that in order for my interest in what I'm looking at to, to be considered exercise, it's more activities of daily living. Yeah. Uh, but in older adults, that is exercise. So, you know, there's uh, – anyway, point being is – So actually, I, can I interject there? Yeah, please, yeah, please. Yeah, because actually I, I would say – I always say exercise, but we're actually – probably more and we study more often sedentary behavior yeah right because right. uh, animals are especially rodents mice are incredibly active they run you know six to ten kilometers a night if you wow. give them a, a running wheel they are okay. very very active so these are um we are studying little tiny athletes mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um so in some ways you know if you suppress that activity by you know uh controlling how much the running wheel can spin or making it harder for the running wheel spin or things along those lines, mm -hmm. you can, or high fat diet or, you know, poor, um, uh, nutritional sort of selections, right. Then you can suppress that into sedentary behavior and look how that compounds and, how it and aggravates, right. Yeah, so yeah. we talk a lot about exercise because I think everybody kind of conceptualized that. I've, I've been but, struggling yeah. with that actually, right. because that that's exactly, uh, it for, for my work also is that when you say exercise, people think, you know, because I, you know, I have an exercise science degree, essentially. Mm -hmm. and, and so people think, oh, well, lifting more, running mm -hmm. farther. And it's not really what I'm looking at. Um, but there's, there's this gap between activity and exercise in, in the common parlance and people on how people understand these, mm -hmm. these, these concepts. So, uh, but, but I'm very interested in how perturbations to diet, activity, uh, you know, pain states, very seldom is that does that manifest in one simple parameter in one part of the system. Right. You know, everything's connected in in organisms. Um, whether you're speaking of rodents or you're speaking of humans, mm -hmm. it's difficult to to you know throw a stone in that pebble and not get ripples. Right. Just throw a stone in that pebble. Throw a stone <laughs> in that <laughs> pond and not get ripples. And so um, I think that that's really intriguing. But also, I'm fascinated by the opportunities that working in a preclinical setting provides where you couldn't really do that in a human model in some cases. Right. And so I think, again, being a, a science and education podcast, 
this would be a really good limb to kind of alight on for a moment because I'm not sure that people entirely understand various stages. You know, we're, we're getting a lot of, a lot of uh, information uh, with the pandemic and whatnot about, you know, clinical trials and phases of clinical trials and so on and so forth. But there's really a lot that leads up to that also mm-hmm. um, in preclinical work and in, in basic science. And so um, maybe let's spend a moment and talk about some of the benefits of being able to conduct preclinical work in, in just in this area and some of the things that we wouldn't necessarily be able to do in a human model and why that's so beneficial. Yeah. So uh, it's a great, it's a great question, right? And, and it, there's always, I, I'll divide sort of the basic science work that we are involved in from both a translational perspective, which people often think about, you know, new therapy, trying to get it forward um, in the whole translational pa- paradigm. Uh, and then we also work a lot in just, you know, discovery, basic discovery of how your anatomy and your physiology are working, right? Because if we don't understand the disease from a fairly technical standpoint, we can't find targets, right? Right. Um, so usually the one you know, people get excited about is the new drugs and new therapies. Right. And uh, these are things that, you know, we, we hear about by the time we hear about them on the news, the, you know, gene therapy trials or other things that are kind of going on. Well, gene therapy has been going on for 25 years. It's preclinical level. Right. right. Um, it's it's not a new technology uh, in the preclinical space. Right. So some of the, the technologies from a new material that's coming forward or a new way of treating or changing the disease are, um, you know, the things that we're kind of, that's the importance of the basic science model because they're so experimental, they're so new, um, we really don't know what's going to happen. And I'll just give, you know, one uh, example uh, technology that we're working with with a collaborator here is so- something I call metabolic reprogramming where we're using... Uh, enzymes to basically change the local metabolism of the joint for osteoarthritis treatment. So when you when you shift a, a metabolic pathway, a lot of things can happen. They, that, that drives how the cell responds to mechanical load, how the cell um, responds to inflammation, and a whole bunch of other things along those lines. And it's really sort of a first of your first of its kind, especially for the osteoarthritis um, treatment idea. There are other places where other diseases where it's been used, but in osteoarthritis, this really hasn't really been attempted to change the joint, just the joint's metabolism. Mm-hmm. Not the whole metabolism of the human being, right? but the metabolism of the joint itself as a way of trying to prevent that joint from from, from getting destroyed by osteoarthritis. So let's, let's uh, break a little bit of that down. When you talk mm-hmm. about metabolic pathway uh, for some of our audience who aren't familiar, what are some examples of various metabolic pathways? Is there something that you could, you could easily I mean, pick out that would describe... Yeah, I mean, uh, the big one would be glucose. I mean, everybody kind of knows uh, that one, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you know somebody who has you know, diabetes or something along right. those lines. Or listen With, to our last podcast. Or, <laughs> so. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's an example of one. There are tons of them, right? Uh, a lot of different places where it can be changed. Um, and your immune system or, like, how your body responds to injury is um, often uh, controlled by metabolic pathways within immune cells that, that come into the, the injured site, right? right. Um, and I could throw out a lot of big big words there, but I'm not sure um, whether that's uh, of, of, of critical um, importance. Yeah, it's, but, always, yeah. it's always interesting when having these conversations to, to 
find a, a middle ground that everybody yeah, can understand. Yeah. You don't want to you right. don't want to speak in you know paint by numbers and crayons, right. but at the right. same time, yeah. So do do your best as you go, and and if okay. we if we need to break some of this down, we have this this great ability to uh, <laughs> to put things on the screen, and you right. know we can we can come back and define some of the stuff. Yeah, like yeah. So I mean, what really what we're looking at is changing some of the metabolites that cause. Um, inflammation to occur. So like if you have a cut on your skin, it gets red and, mm -hmm. and, and different um, cells come in to kind of that site and cause, you know, heat and other sort of things. You feel hot there and scar formation and things along those lines. Mm -hmm. A lot of those reactions are controlled by the, the metabolites that the cells are producing. So if you can go in there and deliver um, something that just changes those metabolites, then you could potentially change the reaction of the body. Now, in the example of a cut, I don't want to do that. I want the I want the cut to heal, right? right? But in the example of osteoarthritis, cartilage doesn't heal. There's no self repair capacity. So if you're well, very limited, very self, limited. Yeah. self repair yeah. capacity. Yeah. Um, so if you cut or injure or tear your cartilage, there's no cartilage coming back. It's not it's not happening. It just right. doesn't happen. So you're always going to have that scar there. You're always going to have that cut there. And part of what happens in osteoarthritis is the joint continuously responds to that cut, that injury, right? And over time, it develops into chronic inflammation and chronic pain. So if I can go in and tell the joint, hey, there's no cut there, then maybe I can do something to prevent you from developing the symptoms of osteoarthritis because I don't have any any current therapies right. that can heal the, the cut itself. Right? So, so it sounds like you can kind of intervene because what we've discussed in, in prior episodes is, um, and I think our audience will be aware of this, but this, this transition from, from useful pain to chronic pain, mm -hmm. where, where that pain has outlived its usefulness. Mm -hmm. But you bring up a really important um, and interesting point that when it comes to these tissues that are... Um, either by their programming or the fact that they're hypovascular, they don't get much blood supply, so they don't get nutrients, they don't really repair when injured. Mm -hmm. The knee is a huge one and also has the benefit of, of existing within a capsule, mm -hmm. right? So you can localize some of these treatments, it seems like, um, it, just within the capsule itself, right? Not nearly as easily as one would think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Run into one of your problems? Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. actually, uh, yeah. D joints are really efficient at clearing drugs, surprisingly mm. efficient at clearing drugs. Interesting. I mean, most things that you inject into the joint are n only there for a day before wow. they're gone. okay. Um, and part of that's because there's huge pressure gradients in the mm -hmm. joint. Right. Um, and so this is a whole other uh, conversation on just, like, the mechanics of how things get in and out of right. the joint. Uh, it's actually really fascinating from a from a mechanics perspective, but it's it's hard. It's much harder to keep drugs there than you would think. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the uh, collaborations that we have with folks around UF are technologies to just keep things there. So, like from the metabolite uh, reprogramming strategy I was talking about earlier, like if I just put an enzyme into the joint to change things, it won't stay there. It's going to get cleared out, just like anything else I put in the joint. But if I can attach that enzyme to some of the tissues, then maybe anchor it in place and, and, and keep it there. And how would you, how would you attach it to the tissue? Uh, that's very the question, good, right? Through very good collaborators. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what I'll say. I, I mean, our lab um, don't, doesn't really do that, right? right. So that's more of a um, somebody who is a uh, protein engineer or right, something along right, those right, lines. Right, so, right. Um, you know, uh, we're really excited about some of the, that technology, but the, the answer to that question is, is you know, through through some pretty sophisticated engineering technology. And I, thank you, uh, you know, as, a, as a, a physiologist, learning about clearance in joint capsules. That's something that mm -hmm. I, 
you know, you learn something new all the time, uh, yeah. even even in your even in your in your field of interest, and and that's something I wasn't aware of, and that I can see how that present a huge problem in in addressing these things. However, the concept of damaged tissue eliciting mm-hmm. an inflammatory response that then won't naturally be resolved because the tissue doesn't get repaired normally. Right. So you bring up a cut, that inflammatory response, you, you get this 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 great. Um, you know, transport of, of cytokines and all these things that signal for tissue repair. Granted, you know, there's more fluid, there's inflammation, things like you mentioned, like right. heat and whatnot. But over the course of that repair, then there's a clearance of, of those signalers mm-hmm. and things return to homeostasis. Things return right. to normal, scar develops, right. um, et cetera. But if you can't repair the tissue damage, then what turns off that signaling? And if that's the case then that makes for a very easy translation into some of these chronic pain states where now it's not even necessarily just an issue of, well, yeah, this is inflamed and, mm-hmm. and, and angry, but now all of the processing in the brain that's associated oh, with that yeah. repeated signaling, which is another area that, that we've discussed on the show, um, all of a sudden becomes much more likely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, really the the the. Re- challenge of osteoarthritis is much it's very very complicated i mean he just laid out uh laid it out really really well i mean ultimately what's going to happen to the joint if you have that injury to the cartilage that cut or or tear of the cartilage um over time the bone's going to remodel in response to that because you know your synovial tissue which is the lining of your joint is going to have inflammation in it and it's going to have these cycles of inflammation non-inflammation but it's never really going to fully resolve um that capsule can become really fibrotic, which makes it harder for your joint to move. Like this mm-hmm. is the stiffening of the joint that you hear a lot of patients talk about where my joint feels really stiff. It comes from the, the capsule around it. Right. Your ligaments change. You're less active. So maybe you have muscle atrophy, right? So you're not around or moving around quite as much. You start to lose muscle mass. Um, all the way out to chronic pain signaling into my brain, maybe contributing to brain remodeling. Um, ripples. Ripples. Yeah. Ripples, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, you're less active. So now you've poor cardiovascular health, you know, mm-hmm. poor respiratory function. Um, it's, it, we talk about it as if it's a disease of, the, of, of just the joint. Osteoarthritis just affects, it does not just affect the joint. It has these effects beyond the joint um, that are really significant. And it all cascades over years, but ultimately um, causes major, major problems throughout the body. One of the things that I, I think is, is really cool is that you are very eager to, to divert, if maybe that's not the right word, but to, uh, to pass along credit for your collaborators and whatnot. And as I was looking through some of the things that your lab uh, is working on, to circle back a little bit to the Gator Suite and some of the components of that, mm-hmm. am I correct in saying that, that some of the, the technology that, or all of it that you're using there is open source, that, that people can you know, yeah. take and adapt? That's phenomenal. So that... And not something you see a whole lot in academia, for the record. You yeah. Know, um, yeah, it's, it's, of course, depending on the field, it's, it's very common for people to play things close to the vest until they publish, of course. Right. So I, I think that's really neat. That's... Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah. So, um, yeah, all the behavioral, uh, analyses that we do is open source and it's basically, I mean, ultimately the thought process there was, does it have some commercial potential? The answer is, yeah, it kind of does, but most of the users are other academics and I never felt right with that, right? Um, I uh, wish more people were in that boat because so, I think that's the right way to right. do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it's just other academic research labs using it, then why don't I just teach them how do you do it and they can 
use it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. ultimately, from an academic perspective, if we're doing this for discovery-based research, I just did. You did, you did a Cruz Almeida <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, I did. Uh, <laughs> and we're just doing this uh, for, uh, you know, research purposes um, to make discovery and translate new drugs and therapies, then, you know, just go for it. Right, I don't, right. I don't see the point of, yeah, if, of if, doing that background. And, and this is not to call anybody out on the carpet, but yeah, if, if that's why we're truly doing what we're doing is to help people in long term, right. then the only way to do that is, is you know, by collaborating. Right. And in sharing what we know. I mean, that's the whole point yeah. of publication, right? So, yeah, yeah I just, uh, I, I wanted to make a point of that because yeah. it seems like that that's part of the culture of your lab from what I see. And, and I just, I deeply respect that. I think that's, I, that should be modeled um, in more labs. That's, I, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah, we have it out at uh, four soon to be five institutions that's great. Um, right now. And we started doing that about, um, I guess it's been four or five years ago now. Um, but, uh, you know, COVID kind of slowed down that translation yeah, a little yeah. bit. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's easy to see with this also. And, and uh, you know, uh, this again is is circling back. We're, we're working in a non-linear timeline throughout mm -hmm. this episode. But I did notice also that, uh, that you were the recipient of a K99 mm. ROO, which is not easy to get. So this is this is a, a grant that's referred to uh, by the, NAA, the NIH as a, a pathway to independence. And uh, it's when when you apply for this this funding... The purpose is to go through a, a not in a, a extremely protracted training phase, but to to get additional training and then to implement that training in a lab and so on and so forth. But you're competing not just with people in the United States for this grant, but this is a, a worldwide pool of applicants. Am I correct? Uh, it it can be, yeah, but it's primarily people. Well. At the NIH level, you don't have to be an American citizen to, to right. for that one, right? right? So this is uh, most of the work I would say is being done in 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 the United States or or you know, um, uh, Western uh, civilizations, right, so, right, so, right. so to speak. But um, but yeah, it's a it's a broad applicant pool. So yeah. when we look at when we look at all of, of what you've discussed and 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 the impact that you're able to uh, to create on our knowledge of of these conditions and. And some of the limitations in in translating basic science to what you do, and then preclinical to clinical. Obviously, there was somewhere along the line where somebody, you or perhaps the mentor, thought, you know what, we're really onto something here, and we seem to be pretty good at it. Let's go for this big grant. Is, am I correct in saying so? Kind of, yeah. Um, to some degree, I I think I was pretty naive to what I was applying for when I applied for it. <laughs> you know, I, I so. Uh, you know, the blinders definitely help, uh -huh. right? I mean, in retrospect, I, you know, I, I know those things to be true. But I didn't realize it when I was applying. I was just like, oh, I'm going to apply for this grant. and Sounds cool, right? And these are, well, yeah. I mean, I was, <laughs> and I, the funding's great. I, I did know what the grant was, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't naive to think that it wasn't a big deal. I knew it was a big deal, but at the same point in time, it was just sort of like, well, these are my ideas, and I'm going to go with them, yeah. right? And part yeah. of that was the mentorship that I got in my postdoc, um, because both of my my main postdoc mentors were always, you, you know, you ask good questions. As an engineer, you ask good questions, and then you find the engineering technologies to help solve them. Mm -hmm. And that was always the the point. We always think about, okay, what's a really good question here in terms of uh, if we could solve that problem, uh, if we could solve how do rodents uh, adapt and show symptoms to osteoarthritis, right? If we could solve that problem, 
with engineering te- technologies, how would it change the field, right? And that was my K99 application. Yeah. Right? I mean, we just yeah. talked about the Gator Suite and everything else, right? right? right. Um, and that's what it was. It was like, well, you know, we're not really all that good at figuring out how rodents adapt and show symptoms to osteoarthritis. We've tried for a little bit, and but we weren't all that great at it. If you went out into the osteoarthritis literature, it's better now, right? Because mm-hmm. my K99 is uh, 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the time that we went in, I mean, I would say maybe 5% of the osteoarthritis papers actually looked at symptoms in the animals. And those that did, didn't do it very well. Mm -hmm. They just kind of, it was sort of uh, basic descriptors. We didn't do it in any sort of major quantitative way. Um, And, you know, since then, myself and some other labs have really pushed on it. I'm certainly not the only person in the field who's pushed on it. But uh, we've come a long ways. And it's, you know, it's now closer to... to, uh, or uh, most of the papers have some element of symptomatic quantification. Yeah. I, I, I think that's fascinating. And, you know, it's one of the, the perks for, for me hosting this show is that I get to see different perspectives in science, not just in, in various fields and, mm-hmm. and disciplines, but, but just the way people approach science. Mm-hmm. And that idea, very engineering-esque, or, or, or maybe even Gene Roddenberry-esque, where you say, okay, well, this is, this is what would be good to know now let's figure out what we need to do to get there right. and then focus on that. I mean, I, I, everybody asks and attempts to answer questions, but, but to add that extra element of, well, in order to answer the questions, we need this. And mm-hmm. putting a, a good bit of focus on developing that technology or that process, I, yeah. I think that's, that's really intriguing, really yeah. intriguing stuff. Yeah, that's the whole BME philosophy. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, yeah, I spent some time uh, running our undergraduate program here at, at UF and went through a curriculum rebuild is for the UF BME program uh-huh. as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely the philosophy in terms of biomedical engineering is, you know, you're, you, you're an engineer, you understand a lot of aspects of, of engineering from mechanics to chemical engineering to electrical engineering and material mm-hmm. science. Um, but in the BME space, really, your, your job is to understand enough mechanics and all, all those other areas and really be that integrator of the knowledge. You got to be able to communicate with the engineers, mm-hmm. to the biologist, right. to the medical doctor, right. uh, who's putting it all to practice. That's yeah. fascinating. I, I think that's probably a good space to leave off <laughs> with this conversation. Um, it's another one of those conversations that I feel like we could talk for quite a while. Yeah. So it's just a good excuse to have you back on at some point. <laughs> um, open invitation. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, I, I would probably this. I think is a good time to point out that if. If y'all that are listening or watching are interested in more of Dr. Allen's work, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you can go to ortho, B-M-E, O-R-T-H-O, B-M-E for biomedical engineering, dot com. That's right. And that's the lab web space, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So so they go to that page. There are also links um, to uh, to the Gator. That's Gator.org. Yeah, Gator.org. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and, yeah. and there's a lot of information on there, a lot of really cool stuff. And so yeah. I encourage you uh, to go and check it out. And And Kyle, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. All right. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.com. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain podcast 
all one word on Instagram.